Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hi everyone, my name's Sean. Um, I work in public programs here at ACME and I'd just like to welcome you all to Studio One for uh, another round of Live in the Studio, which is our monthly look at all things TV related. Uh, Tonight we're going to be voyaging into the depths of intergalactic TV uh, and looking at, in particular, the show that went where no show had gone before, Star Trek. Um, Now, Star Trek was first launched into TV space in 1966. Um, It quickly became a pretty uh, heavy pop cultural phenomenon and gained a pretty large worldwide uh, group of fans. Um, And it's pretty well cemented into sci-fi TV history now. Um, In terms of the fans, I know pretty firsthand how hardcore a lot of you all can be. Um, (laughs) So... We were pretty determined not to make this a kind of 101 Star Trek session or not to try and just give you a bunch of information. Um, Josh might have to. Um, We just wanted to make it a a little bit more of a a look at how Star Trek and how uh, space-themed TV has actually evolved and what it it can possibly say about culture and TV culture as well as our own uh, culture. So instead, we're going to go a bit outside the show um, and take a look at Star Trek itself, but also the impact it's had on society, um, and also have a look at some other shows that maybe followed it out into the Milky Way as well. Uh, So chairing tonight's exploration uh, in the middle there is Josh Canal. He's an entertainment journalist, broadcaster, writer, all-round funny ideas man, um, and he's the producer and co-host of the Box Cutters podcast, which I'm sure a few of you are familiar with. Um, Joining Josh on the flight deck there is a... Uh, genre aficionado and presenter slash producer of Zero G, the science fiction fantasy and historical radio show on Triple R. Rob Jans on the ed- end there. I'm going to let him explain that costume because I have absolutely no idea what. <laughs> um, what do you mean costume? <laughs> Next to Rob here we have Dr. Joyme Baker. Uh, she is the author of a PhD thesis entitled Broadcast Space, TV Culture, Myth and Star Trek, uh, for which, incidentally, she watched over 700 episodes um, of Star Trek, which is roughly about 624 hours like without ads. <laughs> um, Josh's partner in crime at Box Cutters is also joining us. That's John Richards down the end there. Um, he also happens to be the co-creator of Outland, the soon-to-be hit TV show about a science fiction fan group um, that John has incidentally just returned from premiering at the Seattle Gay and Lesbian Film Fest, where it picked up an audience award, I believe, which is very exciting and soon to be on ABC TV. Um, And finally, we have freelance writer, broadcaster and all-round troublemaker, uh, Clementine Ford, um, who considers Battlestar Galactica as one of the greatest television shows ever made. (laughs) And certainly one of the best (laughs) movies. So she'll be talking a little bit about uh, Battlestar Galactica um, tonight. So I'll wrap it up and hand over to Josh now. 
but before I do, just a few quick uh, pieces of housekeeping. We do actually record all of these sessions for podcasts, so if you can turn off your mobile phone so they don't go off, unless you've got some kind of Star Trek theme, and then you can maybe leave it. Um, if anybody needs to go to the bathroom or leave at all for any reason during the session, if you could just come out these doors here, um, that would be great. But if you could just join me in welcoming all of the panellists tonight. Sean, uh, so welcome. It's it's great. It's it, it's. I've been thinking about this a lot since uh, since, since the idea came out, and it's really to say that there's nothing special about Star Trek because the like the original pitch for the show, I'm sure you all know, is uh, it, it was like Bonanza in space, just that simple, a, a location change, just put it in space. Now. I know there's a bunch of pedants probably going, it was wagon train. <laughs> but for the purposes of an excellent callback I have later on, it's bonanza. All right? it's just... The point is that the genre was Western, uh, but the location was space. And they, they even shoved the word frontier into the first sentence of the show just to let audiences know that, oh, it's just a Western. We can relax. We're fine. <laughs> It's a Western, but they're in space. Doesn't matter. Frontier, Western. Take it. It's a wagon train. It's a bonanza. Shut up. <laughs> but it didn't work. Right? The show was cancelled way too early. It only ran three seasons, 79 episodes. And by today's standards, that seems a lot. Like, if it lasted more than three episodes, that's, that's heaps. <laughs> uh, but let's have a bonanza, by contrast, had 431 episodes to Star Trek 79. Wagon Train for the Pedants at 284. Uh, but that's it. No more Star Trek. 79 episodes cancelled. Gone. We can all go home. But just before you get your hats and coats, I wanted to th think about what Star Trek created. Because it, it really gave us a special kind of television religion on its own. It built up a community of people who all came together to build a new world. And through Star Trek, space became the world to come. Or in the Jewish religion, that's what they call the afterlife, the world to come. And space was that for people who watched Star Trek and thought of this future, this life that didn't exist but maybe we could move into, that we could get to through some change in, in dimensional time. And if space was the religion, then Star Trek was the messiah. It died too early because it was misunderstood by the populace. <laughs> but then it was resurrected and invoked again and again and again. Star Trek touched people in a way that became really important for them. They wanted to be part of the life and its potentials in ways that were impossible with Bonanza. It, because Bonanza was in a historical context, so people knew they couldn't go back into the past but maybe they could reach into this mystical future. And because of this emotional magnetism, Star Trek culturally outlasted Bonanza, despite its short run. And Bonanza didn't, for example, have a late 70s comeback in the much better respected then uh, motion picture industry. But Lorne Green, who was Ben Cartwright in Bonanza, his life after leaving the Ponderosa Ranch was spent on Battlestar Galactica. That was his afterlife in space. <laughs> Bam! See, I thought it was worth it. <laughs> so we're going to hear 
of Star Trek's far-reaching effects with our guests today. And, and we're going to hear of the shows that Star Trek inspired. We're going to talk about the politics of, of space travel and uh, humanity's role in the cosmos. We're uh, going to talk about the way Star Trek actually reached into television's own final frontier. And we're also going to talk about some of the secret codes hidden in the text, some of the patterns that are found. And with that, we'll go to Rob Jan uh, to, to start talking about... Basically, what is the same about all the Star Treks? Thank you, Joss and the Battlestar Ponderosa. <laughs> I'm Rob Jan, I'm a Trekker, and it has been four hours since I last costumed. <laughs> uh, how do we get that first picture up? It's not coming up. There it is. You just There asked. it is. Ah. Oh, except you're cooked. That's all right. I like having my head chopped off. <laughs> it's just there to show you that I... This is the lightweight costume. That's the heavy one. Okay. Uh, we've been Star Trekking since 1966, across 45 years. That's over 720 episodes from six live-action and one animated television series. 11, going on 12 movies. More than 600 fiction and non-fiction tie-in novels have been published. Enough comics and graphic novels to absolutely swell the shelves of your local comic store. You could fill a decent-sized mansion with the Star Trek merchandise that's been put out, and I actually know some people in this room who probably have. <laughs> this is great. I can hear, Everything's being recorded. It's so Klingon. I love it. <laughs> it's good to see so many Federation squares here tonight, but I don't see a Federation wharf. <laughs> If you were able to sit down and watch all the DVDs without a break or dipping into the bonus material, it would take you around 23 days solid. And Spock or Data could refine that figure to the last decimal point, and you know they would. One of the many reasons that Star Trek has, is, and probably always shall keep on trekking is that not unlike a certain Time Lord, it does regenerate itself. And for a show whose credo is to boldly go where no one person thing has gone before it actually spends a lot of its own time backtracking on itself. So it's got certain iconic aspects to it, certain tropes and themes that keep repeating. And it's kind of like a comic strip in that respect, whatever your favourite one is, whether it's Dilbert or uh, Garfield. It's always got something about it that is quite familiar, even though they might be changing things quite radically in other areas. Uh, it's like Doctor Who, Batman, Sherlock Holmes, Peanuts, Robin Hood, Star Wars, King Arthur the Bible, the Odyssey and the Iliad. All these fictions exhibit familiar iconography and recurring themes, no matter how many times they're rebooted over the years. I'm going to give you a few of those things here, the, the icons, the holy relics. Uh, unfortunately, it would take me all of my 15 minutes to list them all, so I'm just going to hit a few. And yes, if I miss some of your favourites, that's too bad, because I'm dressed as a Klingon and I don't give a damn. <laughs> In the Original era, they established the big three. Okay, so this is not Sesame Street, it's Star Trek. And the big three essentially are Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And all of the episodes kind of revolved around those characters, even though they would occasionally drop out and give you a Chekhov episode <coughs> or a Sulu episode. Not so much as in the other Star Treks later on, where the actors had more clout when they were extras. Of course, the big three 
projected across the various incarnations of Star Trek, the animated series here. Note Spock's six fingers. If you have this animation cell, it's very collectible. <laughs> Star Trek, the motion picture, the big three again there with Kirk, Spock and McCoy and the wannabe big two there. This Decker character who you've seen in um, Seventh Heaven was supposed to be a young Captain Kirk. Well, he sort of died when he met the real Captain Kirk. And in the movies and the new movie where it's all rebooted, the same trio reimagined for the 21st century. And I always said that you'd know when Star Trek became immortal, when they could successfully recast those main roles and it wouldn't matter. And it hasn't. And I think that's really cool. It means that it's like Sherlock Holmes or Doctor Who. You can just go on forever with this show. I'm sure many people don't. Note the extra special lens flare generator they have on board the Enterprise now. (laughs) You can analyse these three character archetypes to death, and even if you roll them into Next Generation with Picard, Data and Riker, uh, it's um, still very much like that Joseph Campbell book. You may have read that. Uh, Hero with a Thousand Phases. And (laughs) it's the big three character unit works very well no matter what generation you're in. You can even pick out temporary big... Oh, there we go, back in time. Time warp. Big free units in Deep Space Nine and Voyager to some extent, even though they're more characterised by them being ensemble shows in the wake of the 80s and Hill Street Blues and other shows where they were giving you a more rounded approach to people. But you can pick out any three groups here, you know, Cisco, Kira and Odo were quite often seen together and sometimes Bashir and... O'Brien and Dax. It rolls through each one of them. And the same with these folks too, who are very pixelated there because the Doctor's holographic imagery is running out of batteries. And of course in Enterprise as well. And you will note that T'Pol's spacesuit is actually in the Star Voyager exhibition at this very moment, which is so cool. (laughs) And in the fictional spin-offs, again, you are having big free groups here. You've got Mackenzie Calhoun, in Peter David's New Frontier series. And when we go over to another familiar theme, a trope or a character in Star Trek, the other, the outsider, the person who is the captain's sidekick, the hero's buddy, the person who can be sometimes used as comic relief, but not very often in Spock's case. And one of the things about Spock here in all of his various incarnations, that Vulcan salute. Another thing in Star Trek that keeps recurring are familiar gestures. In this case, it's the Vulcan salute based upon a a Jewish blessing that Leonard Nimoy invented. And here we have the nerve pinch. (laughs) Uh, This is uh, invented again by Leonard Nimoy in order to show Spock not actually having to punch people's lights out, something a bit more civilised. Uh, it also works on cats. <laughs> Here's the Vulcan, the infamous Vulcan death grip being used to choke the life out of uh, Captain Kirk. And actually, as Silar, Zachary Quinto as Silar in Heroes, he could actually do the mind meld the hard way. <laughs> Again, more nerve pinching. Uh, actually, we're into mind melding here, which is the Swiss army knife of telepathic uh, esper powers. Being here being used to actually pull information out of poor old... Lieutenant Valeris, who actually was supposed to be Lieutenant Savick, but they didn't get the right actress for it, so instead they got Kim Cattrall before his Sex in the City days. Again, uh, showing that um, you can have rocks in your head when you're mind moulding. Melding. This is a, a hoarder. It works on common water heaters too. <laughs> and very big water heaters, very big computers indeed, Vija. And outside in the exhibition is a wooden Vija. 
It can be used to transfer brains and minds without all of that awful electronic apparatus. <laughs> and, of course, he goes into Ponfar. This is the Vulcan sexual ritual that only works once every seven years. As displayed here in the cable guy, it can result in fights to the death of your best friend. And none of the other Vulcan characters in Star Trek have been immune to Ponfar. And even... <laughs> Jamie Ponfar, oh, which is a bit of a mashup, I'm afraid. The other, other characters, which is very much like Lost, Mr. Data with his, his flotation device, Worf, who was not a merry man, Odo and his bucket, Dax and her spots that go all the way down, uh, Quark, dressed as a Klingon here, and Seven of Nine, who's leaning over for some particular reason that's known only to the Borg. Neelix the Cook. These are ones that are more comic others. And this is uh, Robert Picardo because it's really boring seeing pictures of him as a doctor, but this is from Explorers. So. <laughs> and to Paul. And Dr. Phlox puffing up there. I love that one. And Guinan with her detachable saucer section. <laughs> now, another other is the engineer, which is common across all Star Trek shows. Being a science fiction show, you need an engineer. Here he is up his shaft. Mr. Scott drinking something. Mr. Scott smoking a hooker. <laughs> Mr. Scott in the 24th century. Get out of my chair. And Mr. Scott as Simon Pegg. Not drunk, but about to be drunk because he appears in the Enterprise's engine room inside some pipes. And it actually was a distillery, which I thought was really cool. Geordie uh, with his banana comb. Not a blind drunk engineer, just a blind <coughs> one. Chief O'Brien, one of my favourite engineers, this guy, actually. I like this one. And Banana Torres, or is that Balana? I'm not sure. And Trip Tucker, who was Southern just because he could be. Iconic moments in Star Trek are actual places too, like engineering. Whenever you hear the word engineering, I always think of Star Trek now. You get into lifts and you say bridge. I don't know. I've done that many times. <laughs> Star Trek, the motion picture, the beast of an engineering warp core in Enterprise, a lovely set and the famous circular bridges. All sorts of ones there. The Deep Space Nine, which still looks recognisably Star Trek, even though it was designed by aliens. And then there's the iconic ship, the Enterprise, which in itself is a character. All these ships are called Enterprise. Treat her like a lady and she'll always bring you home. But she may ask you to pay the taxi fare. Phasers, communicators. The, communi the present mobile phones were based upon... A guy's inspiration for the communicator, even if they did start about a, out a bit more brick-like than that. The communicator pins, which have been replicated as actual Wi-Fi devices. The tricorder, which again has been actually invented as a weather monitoring station. The transporter, which sort of doesn't quite exist yet. And if it does, <laughs> never get into one without ha someone having sprayed the room with mortine first. <laughs> we have shuttlecraft... And recurring villains in Star Trek, Harry Mudd. One of the few recurring villains in the first original series. Although, of course, Khan showed up in a movie later on. And also in commercials about soft Corinthian leather seats. <laughs> Q, a recurring villain later on. A whole alphabet of them. Um, Law, who was actually one of those uh, mirror kind of good guy, bad guy characters without actually have to muck around with timelines or parallel universes. There you had the opposite of the character. 
Uh, Gold Cat in Deep Space Nine, one of the best villains, I think, over the series. And Tribbles. <laughs> and a Glomer, a Tribble Predator, which I liked. Uh, and another, a Rock. Here is the enemy that gets turned into a friend within the episode. Here are enemies that just stayed enemies for a very long time. And Worf, who became a friend, and this is how they usually do it in Star Trek, they take the enemy, they make him a regular on the ship or whatever, they become a friend. And here are the Klingons again with sharp weapons. They're such jolly good allies. And Worf, in a less uh, happy mood, with his family, Kyla. Once you get a family on Star Trek, then you're really set with cute kids and, you know... Oh, and you have female enemies and male friends. Worf just got the whole family experience. Quark also suffered from this. And Garrick, the Cardassian cardi maker. And, of course, Seven of Nine, who starts out as a Borg and then gets sexier. <laughs> Robots in Star Trek. Well, basically, you are either to make love to them or turn them off, and hopefully not at the same time. So... <laughs> Some of them are the reason why the Star Trek people went out into space in the first place. Androids, who are always very pretty. And it's Lurch there, by the way, the big guy. And then the rather more feral robots. And the water heater again. And the one that's hanging outside. And the really biggest bad of all the doomsday, Carrot. And just a plain bad robot. Gods in Star Trek. Always paper mache, always false. Gene Roddenberry actually was uh, an atheist and he said, I condemn false prophets, I condemn the effort to take away the power of rational decision to drain people of their free will and a hell of a lot of money in the bargain. Religions vary in their degree of idiocy, but I reject them all. For most people, religion is nothing more than a substitute for a a malfunctioning brain. And even though the Enterprise had a uh, multi-denominational chapel, and that's not Christine Chapel, the... Gods always were false, and you thought the women wore shirt skirts in Star Trek. That's Apollo, who actually was a false god. It's no good if you're a human and become a god. You get silver contact lenses. <laughs> or you're a light bulb. Or you're, and this is a great one, this is Kukulkan from the animated series, a Mexican god. Also Quetzalcoatl, I think, as well. But it was another alien masquerading as a god. A more conventional alien masquerading as a god. And Jim Kirk saying, what does God need of a starship? A devil, or Mr Spock, not quite sure. And Picard saying, I do not want to be taken as a god. And when they did get religious, people say, oh yes, Deep Space Nine actually got into a bit more religious stuff there. They were more respectful. Who do they have as the chief advocate for the, the religious guys? Louise Fletcher, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest. One of the most evil Star Trek characters ever. A fine poster girl for religion. More light bulbs, that's an Abajoran orb. Again, aliens, not gods. And the founders who made their Jem'Hadar minions worship them by genetically engineering them to do so. Charming. Uh, the Voyager being worshipped as a god. And, of course, the Ferengi setting up in the god game. And, of course, Q as a god. And I do believe uh, uh, DeForest Kelly once said... Just once, Jim, I'd like to beam down to a planet and say, Behold, I am the Archangel Gabriel. (laughs) Well, the thing about Star Trek is, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. And we like it that way, I think. We like our surprises too, but we want to see our familiar icons and our tropes. And the Ferengi quark got that line at the end of um, Deep Space Nine, so I think he did rather well. He had to pay for it, though. 
And the last word on gods in Star Trek is that the Klingons had them once, but they found them more trouble than they were worth, so they killed them all. (laughs) Thank you. A a, a couple of things uh, there. Something that I'm not familiar with. What what was New Frontier? New Frontier is a a set of spin-off Star Trek novels by a writer called Peter David, and there's about ten or so of them, and they're all set on board a, another starship called the Excalibur. So they've, they've got a whole new crew. It's kind of like Voyager in a way, only about 50 times better. <laughs> and is, so is it, is it considered canon as well? Should be. But there's no, no. no official... No, not really, but there are, there's an, at least one action figure, so heck, you right. can't the, deny that. Once it's in plastic... The other thing is that that, that comment uh, <coughs> Roddenberry making about religion and taking money and... Which you, is a bit rich for Jade <laughs> Roddenberry, yes. Yeah, that's, that's what I was, was going to say. Like he, he really created a religion and the merchandising around it. Yeah, well, you just wait till the Star Wars, Star Trek Wars that we have in the 22nd century. Um, I, I wasn't aware of those coming. Well, you've never watched, you've never watched Futurama? <coughs> Josh? I, I, I have, but I thought that was a cartoon. Well, <laughs> well it was, but... <laughs> uh, ne- ne- next up, we've got uh, Jomi Bakair. <laughs> that's, that's how it's pronounced, yeah, yeah. Bakair, that, that, Bakair. That, that sounds much more Star Trek-y, isn't it? Yeah, like, a, a bit of Bashir and Picard in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah I like, I like, that. I like yeah. that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, Baker, if you're looking her up on there. <laughs> jo- Jomi Baker. Uh, talking to us about humanity's place in the cosmos. It sounds all very deep. It does. It sounds really, really yeah, yeah, deep. Yeah. Do you I, want to grab a tribble just to... I'll just come yeah, just, yeah, um, right. I, I had. I'm, I'm disappointed because I have a tribble and they could have been friends with... You know, so, um, one thing that I... Yeah, well, that's right. We could have ended up in all sorts of trouble. But you only need one. You don't actually need the two. It's a Klingon tribble. It's dead. It's not really oh, OK. <laughs> um, I always find talking about Star Trek, it's a bit like that um, next-gen episode Parallels where Worf finds himself in all those different alternate um, Trek universes where all these different alternate Trek um, events happen. And no matter how much we talk about tonight, there will always be these other parallel Trek worlds that we won't get to, to touch on. But what I'm interested in is the way that Star Trek, and science fiction in general, but Star Trek in particular, picks up on that profound question that humans have always asked, um, what's out there and what's our place in the cosmos? Now, if you go to um, Carl Sagan um, in his 1980 book, Cosmos, he has a rather blunt and depressing answer to this, which is that we live on an insignificant, uh, insignificant planet on a humdrum star tucked away in the corner of a very unimportant galaxy. I'm like, so we're really sort of nothing special at all. OK, we can just all give up. Um, and sci-fi, I think, sort of takes up this question of, well, what is our place in the cosmos now that we are no longer the centre, not only of the solar system, but the universe. We're not as important, perhaps, as we thought we were in generations past. Um, And uh, films such as 2001 or Solaris, which give a sense of awe and mystery about space, they sort of have a, I think, perhaps slightly dishearteningly suggest that maybe what we find out in space is beyond our comprehension, that that there's a limit to what we'll be able to understand if we get out there. Whereas I think, for me, Star Trek is more optimistic and it tends to suggest that, as imperfect as we are, our mix of 
intellect, emotion and sheer kind of bravado will see us in good steads to cope with all the challenges we find out in space. And this can be even more so than seemingly more advanced races. And we always seem to kick butt when we come across more advanced races or seemingly so in Star Trek. And I'd like to play the first clip, please. Actually, the issue at stake is patriotism. You must return to your world and put an end to the commies. All it takes are a few good men. What? That nonsense is centuries behind us. But you can't deny that you're still a dangerous, savage child race. Most certainly I deny it. I agree we still were when the humans wore costumes like that 400 years ago. Which time you slaughtered millions in silly arguments about how to divide the resources of your little world. And 400 years before that, you were murdering each other in quarrels over tribal god images. Since then, there are no indications that humans will ever change. But even... When we wore costumes like that, we'd already started to make rapid progress. Oh yeah? You want to review your rapid progress? Rapid progress. To where humans learn to control their military with drugs. Sir, Sigbe reports Lieutenant Torres' condition is better. Oh, concern for one's fellow comrade. I'll touch you. And now a personal request, sir. Permission to clean up the bridge. Lieutenant Worf is right, sir. Security chief, I can't just stand here and let... Yes, you can, Lieutenant Yah. Oh, better. <laughs> and later, on finally reaching deep space, humans, of course, found enemies to fight out there, too. And to broaden those struggles, you again found allies for still more murdering. The same old story all over again. No. The same old story is the one we're meeting now. Self-righteous life forms who are eager not to learn, but to prosecute, to judge anything they don't understand or can't tolerate. What an interesting idea. Prosecute and judge. Suppose it turns out we understand you humans only too well. We've no fear of what the true facts about us will reveal. Facts about you? Splendid, splendid, Captain. You're a veritable fountain of good ideas. There are preparations to make. But when we next meet, Captain, we'll proceed exactly as you suggest. Now, as we all know, Q's in no position to be judging other species on their ethical behaviour. And Picard and his crew go on to prove that, for now, yes, we have improved somewhat. Um, but I can think that this kind of scenario was one that Star Trek plays out a lot, putting humans up against species who seem to be more advanced in one particular way or another and showing that those advancements are either false or that humans, with their sort of mixed-bag mongrel approach um, to the space travel, are actually better placed to deal with space. Um, one way this has played out is... Uh, cultures that have become overly invested in technology, so more technologically advanced cultures are usually shown to be highly at fault for depending on their technology way too much. So I'm thinking here of the original series Kirk either blowing up all those computers or convincing to blow themselves up, which I think is always a nice touch um, in episodes like Return of the Archons or A Taste of Armageddon, and even a trial ultimate computer on the Enterprise, which again is shown to... Um, be a really, really bad idea. Never, ever give complete control to the computer is, is what these episodes always say. 
In the next gen, we have when the bow breaks, where a planetary shield is causing sterility. But no one on the planet knows how the shield works anymore. Um, in uh, Arsenal of Freedom, they come across the remnants of a culture that designs advanced weaponry systems, but the weaponry systems has wiped them out. It's been too advanced, um, and the computer has won, and you know, the people kneel. In Voyager, they have uh, an episode called Prototype where warrior robots are carrying out a war, but they go um, along and destroy their biological creators when they want to make peace. Well, the robots don't want peace. They want program for peace. They're programmed for war, so let's kill everybody off and keep the war going. So we get this sort of this idea that, you know, yes, we might not be the most technologically advanced race out there, but being too technologically advanced comes with its perils. By the same token, whenever the crew of the different Star Trek shows come across super beings who are more advanced in some ways, they're always shown to be over-invested in some way. Um, I'm thinking of unethical use of extremely enhanced mental abilities such as um, Day of the Dove or Plato's Stepchildren, um, the corrupting power of mental abilities of Q or Apollo got shown on um, your uh, overhead as well, versus good old human ingenuity and bluffing. So Kirk can just bluff his way through any situation against a supposedly superior um, adversary. So in Corbomite Manoeuvre, just making up a completely false um, defensive system on the Enterprise and bluffing uh, his way through the situation. And it's that idea that, that you, humans, we may not be the smartest, we may not be the tech, most technologically advanced, but somehow we end up being better than these other advanced cultures. Um, the next clip I want to show is from the rejected original pilot from 65 The Cage, which got repackaged as the Menagerie, where Captain Pike comes up against the Talosians, who are so powerful that they can make you believe anything and it feel real like being on a Star Trek panel. So um, we can show the next clip, please. What well, I just put irresistible hunger in my mind. And you can't, can you? You do have limitations, don't you? If you continue to disobey, from deeper in your mind, there are things even more unpleasant. As you conjectured, an Earth vessel did crash on our planet, but with only a single survivor. Now let's stay on the first subject. All I wanted from that moment was to get my hands around your neck. We repaired the survivor's injuries and found the species interesting. The primitive thoughts put up a block you can't read through. It became necessary to attract a mate. All right, all right, let's talk about it. Now, of course, I just wanted an excuse to show the big E.K. aliens because, you know, what's a sci-fi show without big Ed-head aliens? Um, so these guys have amazing mental abilities, but pure hate and primitive emotion just completely nullifies it, which, you know, you've got to love. So what 
would seem to be one of our limitations as far as, say, Q is concerned, or you're just brute killers, actually becomes a strength. And what seems like a strength, these amazing mental abilities, actually becomes a weakness because they've forgotten how to work anything mechanically and they need another race to do that for them. Um, and in the end, these delusions, a lot of these super beings end up being kind of tragic or lonely figures. You know, their societies are in decay. Um, they've, they've got no challenges anymore. So to be super advanced isn't necessarily a great thing. So there's, there's sort of cautionary tales. Don't invest too much in one characteristic. Don't invest too much in your technology. Keep your mixed bag of different attributes. But there are also cautionary tales against humans. Don't get too cocky. Don't take shortcuts and genetically engineer yourself to be better. Think Khan. Not a good idea. Be wary of being too arrogant. Um, in next gen, the best of both worlds, Earth is declared Sector 001. Now, in the combined brains trust of this room, I'm sure there's someone who knows about Star Trek cartography, but doesn't that sort of sound like Earth is back at the centre of the universe again? You know, that smacks a little bit of arrogance to me. And we can become too Earth-centric and human-centric in our thinking, and that's something that Star Trek critiques, and that's got my final clip for that one. Anyway. <laughs> I'm afraid we've had some security problems. Looks like looters got in here. This would be perfect. Real frontier medicine. Frontier medicine? <laughs> Major. I had my choice of any job in the fleet. Did you? I didn't want some cushy job or a research grant. I wanted this. <coughs> the farthest reaches of the galaxy. One of the most remote outposts available. This is where the adventure is. This is where heroes are made. Right here. In the wilderness. This wilderness is my home. Well, I find <laughs> a lot of injured people. Doctor. You can make yourself useful by bringing your Federation medicine to the natives. Oh, you'll find them a friendly, simple fuck. <laughs> so it's not just enough to go forth and explore. You've got to change your mindset. You've got to be not so Earth-centric and not so human-centric if, if we're supposed to fulfil our potential in space. And I think, um, you know... Generally, in Star Trek, we are up to that task. There are instances of limitations. Um, one interesting episode from season one of Next Gen is where no one has gone before, where there's an alien traveller who takes the Enterprise to the edge of the universe. And they enter this place which is kind of a mixture of, of where the, the boundaries of space and time and thought have completely broken down and anything you think become real, which is kind of similar in, in a way to The Cage. But the, the traveller kind of bluntly tells us, look, you're not advanced enough to be here. You, you don't have enough control over your own minds to be able to handle this place. And sure enough, um, the humans don't. They're everyone's nightmares, memories, dreams start coming real and everything sort of falls apart. And he sort of invokes that, that quote from um, Arthur C. Clarke that any sufficiently advanced um, technological society will be indistinguishable from magic. And he says, look, yeah, what, I can't really explain what I do. It's just magic to you folks. You're just not sufficiently advanced enough. Um, there's one of those few moments where, where we really aren't at the task, but mostly we are. As the, despite our limitations, we sort of can hold our own in space, and I think that's something kind of nice in Star Trek. Um, 
In the Corbomite manoeuvre, which I mentioned earlier, Kirk says to his crew, the greatest danger facing us is ourselves, an irrational fear of the unknown. And I think that's a really interesting quote because, in a sense, the, ch the biggest challenge that we take out into space are the ones that we take there ourselves. Uh, thank you, Jamie. There's, there's so much I find fascinating about that. The, uh, the idea that as... Because you keep talking about humans, mm. but, of course, the enterprise isn't just humans. No. And it's, it's a federation. Yeah. And so it's like, as this federation, we know to... I say we, because we're in, in the role of the protagonists. Uh, that... We know when to use physical violence and when to use smarts. Like, if someone's mm. using smarts against us, well, we could just use violence against them, and it's, yeah. it's easy. Ha-ha, we got you. <laughs> uh, but then there's, there's also this kind of fear of technology, any technology that is more advanced than mm. what we have. And yet uh, it's necessary to get out there in the yeah. first place. So it's this weird sort of balancing act. So, so is it a case that, in, in, the, in the Star Trek universe, that uh, we have reached this kind of perfect balance of uh, technology and violence and smarts and like is, is it just is it just that while we're watching these particular series that's where humanity and associated uh, races have have gone to and that's just that just happens to be what we see or is it that with the federation there is some kind of perfection in homogeneity that everybody keeps check on everybody else well, I think that's the, what the projected vision is supposed to be, that, that, that it is um, imperfect but working really, really well. And I think that that is part of what the vision of Star Trek is. But um, there, are, there are holes in that, obviously. It's a, a pro-union show. Yeah. It's, it's a, <laughs> it's a, uh, and, and the other thing was that Sector 001 just reminds me so much of uh, international telephone codes, <laughs> where the United States is number one. yeah. yeah. And everybody else is, you know... Well, that's right. I was actually wondering, wondering if Joy was saying, yeah. how much of this do you think is actually Star Trek? Because you talk about human. How much of this is actually just American? Because it seems a very mm. kind of, you know, North American kind of... And we've talked about Frontier and yeah. you know, Wagon Train. Mm. We've talked about, um, you know, this kind of American approach. It, it's, it strikes me that's more... A European take on Star Trek would probably be... Well, it'd be Blake 7, wouldn't it? Yeah. Which, no, I've <laughs> seen European Star Trek. Yeah, it, was, uh, it was a horrible German comedy movie that was on a couple of weeks ago on SPS and it is hideous. Inspector X. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want a space spin-off of Inspector X. No. No. <laughs> what about Asteroid Dog? Yeah. But I mean, do you think that's the, is it kind of, we're actually talking more about American? Yeah, perhaps. I guess I was deliberately kind of looking at it you know, when I watch that, when I'm not watching Star Trek, I like, I like to think about how it's influenced by culture and mm -hmm. how it influences culture. But when I'm actually watching it, I do really want to believe that it's its own little self-coherent world. So I guess I wanted to look at, you know, what does it say in its own terms of, you know, if this really was the future? And yeah, that sounds it's... really geeky, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking but, about Star Trek. Yeah, yeah well, that's you, know, right. you, you yeah, can't, yeah. you can't not. And that's, I think that's, that's the thing. We, it, it kind of forces us to think about some kind of perfection and, uh, and think about a world where 
Yeah, we are perfect, damn it. <laughs> but yet it's anti-perfection yeah. as well. So like, in Return of the Archons, they have this really ordered alien society, but Kirk says, no, 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 that's too ordered. That's creepy. That's got to stop. Let's kill the computer. You know, so you use the term perfection. I'm not sure if that's quite... Well, it's, the, it's that paradox of mm. the perfect is imperfect. Yeah. So you have to be imperfect That's to right. be perfect. Because clearly <laughs> the works. Federation's computers are not perfect because they have those holodecks which are an OH&S nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> never get in a holodeck. No. Never get beamed down. Probably never get into a shuttle either. In fact, never go anywhere. <laughs> never what are we doing? And you know what? Just put some seatbelts on those, on those chairs. You wouldn't have to hold on so much. They have them. Uh, they've got the seatbelts in the motion picture, but they found they got in the way of the plot. <laughs> the, um, the Mad Magazine, uh, Mad Magazine parody of the motion picture was called uh, Star Blech. <laughs> I have that. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Uh, Clementine, you are going to take us outside of the Star Trek universe. I'm a little it's, bit frightened, don't, to be don't honest. Don't be, don't <laughs> be. It's all right. It's, Hardcore I, audience of Trekkie I sedated them on their way in. They're I fine. I was thinking, actually, when I was sitting here looking at everyone, that it's always interesting to see... You know, whatever show you talk about here, I've, I've, I've done um, one on women in TV and I did one on... Um, uh, oh, God, it's The Wire. How could I forget the name of The Wire? It's, talk only, on it's it. only two words. <laughs> it's always interesting to see who... The kinds of people that come and you'd sort of expect, like, Star Trek especially is such a, a deeply ingrained idea in popular culture as to what a, a Trekkie looks like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got, like... A, We're very friendly. A gentleman in a suit <laughs> and a lady in a lovely scarf. We're expecting people to turn up in Klingon outfits. You know? uh, only us be dogs mad. behind the, be behind the desk. <laughs> so I'm, I am actually vaguely going to be talking about Star Trek, but mostly talking about Battlestar Galactica, so I hope that that's all right with everyone. Has anyone not seen Battlestar but is planning on watching it? You mean the original or the new one? I mean the new one. Where is it from? Oh, it's, it's done and dusted now, but I'm just saying that there are sort of spoilers in here, so apologies for that. I'll warn you and you can block your ears. I've got forget pills <laughs> later on. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent show. It's worth watching, but I apologise. There are um, spoilers. So um, I'm also, I'm not an academic, so I'm not used to kind of like just having a page of notes and rattling off some beautiful, perfect speech. So I've, <laughs> I've written quite extensively here, so forgive me if I look down and tap my way through it. Um, so I was invited to speak about Battlestar Galactica in the context of Star Trek paving the way through the final frontier to allow shows like Battlestar Galactica in its new kind of incarnation to exist because it's so different from the original. Um, and also to deliver a whole new audience into the realm of science fiction, you know, people who might not have, who might not even now associate themselves with science fiction watchers would have no interest in watching something like Star Trek because they would see that as being too specifically out there in sci-fi for their interests. But because Battlestar exists within the world of science fiction but quite outside of it in terms of the fact that it doesn't have, there's no aliens, there's no, um, as Edward James Olmos, who played Battlestar Galactica's William Adama, the captain of the ship, he famously had a clause in his contract that no strange, I'm quoting here, no strange aliens or monsters would ever appear on the show because he wanted to ensure that the story stayed focused on human drama. So in this way, the Battlestar Galactica world kind of vastly diverges from the science fiction mould 
while still also being able to enjoy all the freedoms that that gives you by being placed outside of the world as we know it. Um, it flips all of the tropes associated with the final frontier on their head. Um, so rather than exploring the realms of possibility and fantasy by, locating, by simply locating itself in outer space where the rules of logic need not apply, it uses the reaches of outer space to freely explore what Joanie was talking about, notions of humanity, politics and morality that presently and constantly, but presently while it was being made, you know, in 2004 to 2008, really confronted us as a species, but specifically because it was made in America and Canada, those kind of North American political issues. Um, so why discuss Battlestar Galactica on a themed evening focused on Star Trek? As Gene Roddenberry once said of the Star Trek universe, by creating a new world with new rules, I could make statements about sex, religion, Vietnam, politics and intercontinental missiles. Indeed, we did make them on Star Trek. We were sending messages and fortunately they all got by the network. Um, and I've written here, if you'll pardon the pun, it's an admirable enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> Examining our failings and strengths as humans, our politics, our culture, exploring a terrain where we don't understand... Sorry, exploring a terrain we don't know to understand the one that we do. But perhaps Roddenberry or the network wanted to do that a little too accurately. Because unfortunately, no matter its evolution, Star Trek began as a show, and this is, I hope it's going to be okay with you, I'm expecting some audible groans. It began as a show rooted in a masculine-driven culture, exploring the world as Western civilization understood it. And whether or not it's nitpicky to point out the assumptions inherent in those famous opening lines, to boldly go where no man has gone before, the fact remains that 1966's imagination of the 23rd century was still very deeply rooted in a pre-feminist cultural ide ideology that it was no big thing to talk about man's exploration... I had a groan over there. <laughs> man's exploration of space. The lady in the lovely scarf. <laughs> man's exploration of space as a mostly boys' own adventure. And yes, Uhura was the ship's communications officer and she was one of the first African characters on American TV. But before her, there was another female on the bridge, um, number one in the original pilot, was the second in command. And in the storyline, she briefly assumes command when Captain Pike descends to the planet. Uh, Talos, 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 Talos 4. It was just one of the problems that the network had with the original pilot, along with the disturbing and so-called satanic appearance of Spock. <laughs> and the fact that neither a Vulcan... According to the network, neither a Vulcan nor a woman in charge would be considered believable by the audiences. Um, so ultimately, they gave the show a second chance and decided that a man from another planet with Vulcan powers, pointy ears, and a terrible hairdo would be more realistic as a second in command than a woman. And uh, thus, one of the most enduring figures in pop culture was created. Even reviews of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movie has have complained of the lack of significant roles for women within that reincarnation. Melissa Silverstein wrote in the Huffington Post that the three women with the most significant roles were actually still incredibly insignificant. As she wrote, one gave birth, one was a mother, and one was a girlfriend. She declares that Zoe Saldana's Uhura was relegated to little more than window dressing. And actually, I find this incredible that he said this bald-facedly in an interview with Paul Fisher, Zachary Quinto, said... Well, between Spock and Uhura, I think it provides a really interesting depth and that Uhura ultimately represents a canvas onto which Spock projects the emotions that he can't otherwise express. <laughs> 
that this observation was offered 50-plus years after the debut of the first Star Trek shows that while many things have changed, the fundamental assumption that women can fulfil important character roles by acting as foils and deliverance vehicles for men remains very much intact. Unfortunately, women have often been relegated to roles where they operate as a canvas for the real characters to explore a narrative arc. Um, the oft-spoken-of manic pixie dream girl, so present in indie films as the means for a romantic end for the introspective, invariably less attractive male lead, isn't just a trope for a generation of wannabe filmmakers with a film school certificate in one hand and a poster of Zoe Deschanel in the other. <laughs> if people complain about a lack of gen- uh, gender equality in any subculture, I think particularly science fiction, given the dominance of masculine-driven fantasies, sexual or otherwise, that dictates the genre... They are either torn down as being angry or not getting it or ruining it for everyone or they have ultimately pathetic examples waved in front of them as if the ratio of two women to six men on a bridge proves we're equal rather than just really bad at maths. (laughs) Um, Perhaps, though, moving on to Battlestar Galactica being something that I think contradicts this and I don't... I'm kind of... um, I'm frustrated that... There's just one sort of space in which we can talk about Battlestar tonight because I feel like there's so many things that you can discuss in context of the show, like politically, culturally. Um, the, the whole religious expanse of the show is fascinating in and of itself. But the gender stuff is often talked about in discussions of Battlestar Galactica because they, um, you know, there's this understanding that Battlestar Galactica is this wonderful show because it has strong women in it. And there's this constant kind of conversation about the strong, strong women that you'll see in Battlestar Galactica. And I kind of... On the one hand, I think that that does recommend itself as a show, that you can go to a show and you can find examples of strong women in it. But on the other hand, I don't understand why the strong female thing is, is something that we need to characterise, because I feel like strong women is really just another way of saying women who are three-dimensional in a show, because you don't have to be strong in terms of being like a really strong personality like Starbuck in Battlestar. There are many really irritating female characters in the Battlestar universe that are quite complex and quite interesting, like Callie, the ship's mechanic, who um, I think exhibits quite negative feminine sort of stereotypes um, about... uh, There's a degree of patheticness to her nature that, um, in context of who she is as a character, works really, really well. And the fact that she does also balance it out by being, you know, she's a ship's mechanic, and so she's got all these interesting kind of layers really irritating, horrible woman to watch. She's not a strong female in terms of being a female that you'd want as a role model, but she is a layered, complex character. So I feel like we can kind of get tripped up a little bit in terms of recommending shows because there are strong women in them. But that's just a little by the by. Um, So perhaps the most glaring example of contravening typical gender roles within the Battlestar universe is Cara Thrace, otherwise known as Starbuck. Operating within the military structure, Starbuck and her co-pilots train together, sleep together, uh, shower together, drink together, they fight together. Starbuck is a typical kind of male role model within that uh, sort of environment. She's got a short fuse, and and within that cultural kind of literary trope. She's got a short fuse, a quick mouth, a heart of gold, and is best fighter in the fleet. Um, She makes mistakes, but it's ultimately she who directs... Spoiler if you care. She who directs the fleet to the place that they end up. I won't give that spoiler away. (laughs) And in short, she's exactly the kind of person that would normally be played by a man, which is probably why so many fans of the original Battlestar Galactica series were outraged when they heard she would be a woman. 
You'd have thought Moore had just announced he'd be remaking the show as an experimental black and white art project in German. <laughs> Inspector Rex. <laughs> that's, that's what it was. Starbuck was a man. Everyone knew that. The bloody feminists had gotten to them. Ron Moore was a pansy-assed fucker who secretly wanted to be a lesbian feminist. <laughs> I won't watch it. Dirk Benedict, the original Starbuck, wants nothing to do with the series and rejected all offers to be a part of it. Poor Dirk. But the beauty of making Starbuck a woman wasn't just in Katie Sackhoff's flawless performance. And as an aside, Starbuck didn't just defy stereotypes of gender in the series, but Sackhoff actually looked like someone who drank hard, fought hard, and was a really good fighter pilot and really cared about that. Um, She was makeup-free for most of the series. She once said that she based her character on someone who looked like they'd be really fit but also looked like they drank too much beer. So she kind of had a little pot belly throughout it. And she was often sort of walking around in the kind of crop top fighter pilot and trouser, like cargo trouser gear that everyone was wearing. I mean, the boys weren't wearing crop tops. But um, (laughs) that was when they were sort of, you know, she was training and stuff. Um, But as a show, it didn't kind of push those ideas that to be a woman... You could be really, really skilled, but also you had to, you had to also be really, really typically hot. Um, so she was a welcome antidote to all of the delic- delicately beautiful women we're asked to believe spend their days investigating crime scenes or sitting in front of computers hacking into large government organisations <laughs> at 22. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> The beauty was in that her gender was never, ever raised as a caveat to her performance. There was never a suggestion that Starbuck was an anomaly because she was a woman. She fought in the ring with Leah Dahmer, and no one stepped in to stop it because she could handle it, even though she was getting her nose broken, and he was too. Saul Tai, who most of anyone had a problem with Starbuck, never raised the fact that she was a girl as a criticism. It was accepted that women could do these things, and within that society, you got the impression that to question it would have produced looks of total confusion on the faces of its inhabitants. Um, in one of the final scenes, I'm going to show a, a clip now, but just in a second, in one of the si- final scenes, we see Starbuck saying goodbye to Adama, having in the, the hero, the typical kind of hero's quest arc, having completed her mission and um, not needing to stay for any other reason and not needing to be fulfilled by anyone and not needing to fulfil anyone else. And um, it's really, really difficult to find Battlestar Galactica clips online because NBC has sort of uh, copyrighted all of them. Um, so there's a lot of fan-made videos on there. And sifting through all of the, like, the love kind of um, fan-made put together, you know, like, along to Aerosmith songs and stuff like that. <laughs> I found this one, which is the clip, but also its, its title is Explaining Starbucks' Disappearance, which happens in the middle of the show. And you just have to look out for the little kind of jokes that the fan put in, in there. Can we play the clip, please? <laughs> very earliest memory of my father was him flying away on a big plane. They wondering when he was coming back. He's not coming back this time. No. He's not. Neither am I. Where are you going? I don't know. I just know that I am done here. I've completed my journey. 
mission she was in, in no need to stay for anyone else and she had a storyline that belonged to herself and it wasn't dependent upon anyone else um, when you consider literary landscapes that are still being written now um, landscapes that operate within the fantasy or the science fiction mold and therefore have the freedom to try and be better you can see that the decision on the behalf of the Battlestar creators to create women who are strong but what I mean by that is actually uh, that they're actually well-rounded and that they're actually interesting and that they have storylines of their own and that they pass the Bechdel test um, that it's still quite revolutionary I'm just going to talk very 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 quickly about Game of Thrones as an example it's a world that's not even rooted in the mythology of the world as we know it and issues of morality and humanity still take precedence but George R. R. Martin has written his women as prostitutes there's a couple of feisty characters prostitutes and there's a lot of rape and a whole lot of getting sold into marriage and then learning to love your rapist slash oppressor slash warrior slash Carl. Um, as useless or irritating as some people think it is to harp on about gender issues, the fact remains that we are more often than not as readers and viewers asked to swallow a lot of disparate crap because that's the way things are and asking them to be better is like trying to ruin it for everyone else. Um, so what Battlestar Galactic does so well is envision a world that is truly post-feminist, the kind of world everyone says that we already live in, but we clearly don't, because we're still having debates about whether or not women should be allowed to hold combat roles or if they're capable of leading a country or if it makes them a bad mother to not just go back to work but to want to go back to work. Battlestar Galactica envisions this world, lays it out and doesn't make a big deal about it because it's a show about the wider questions of humanity and what separates us from machines, and that's what the story is. Um, it's a show about humanity not about men or women or their relative strengths and weaknesses and the progression of the show takes us from a very simplistic beginning humans good Cylons bad and very cleverly through a definite four series arc suggests to us that can that there can be evil and goodness and vice versa and that there are no absolutes when it comes to morality I think I'm dangerously running over time that's nice you've still got at least one minute 
Oh, really? <laughs> that short a time? Uh, no, keep going. I'm, I'm loving it. Um, keep going. I've got questions, notes about Starbucks. Oh, okay, I'll, just, I'll just go very, very quickly through the next bit. Um, so Laura Roslin, one of the most divisive characters to have ever graced television screens. Um, as the president of the colonies, Roslin is supposed to have come to the role reluctantly. And there's a scene in series three where Lampkin, the Irish lawyer, is talking to Adama. And he says something, and I, I can't find the clip anywhere and I can't find it in the, the actual show. I can't remember which episodes it's in. <laughs> I can't find the quote. But it's something exist. along the lines of, there's nothing more determined than someone who comes to power and pretends to do so reluctantly or something like that. There's no, there's no one more power hungry than the person who pretends to do so reluctantly. Um, Laura Roslin is, for all intents and purposes, supposed to be a good and moral person, but how quickly she makes decisions that are underhanded, corrupt and morally repug repugnant. And I hate her. She's like a love or hate kind of a character. <laughs> I think she's the worst kind of hypocrite because she holds people to a standard that she can barely even see, let alone bring herself up to. Um, and I think that what's... This is why I would love for Sean to do a, a show just, as, a, not just on Battlestar because I think that in the context of it as a show reflecting contemporary America and Amer contemporary American politics and moral culture in the mid-2000s, She's like a horrible portent of what might have happened had George Bush been smart. Um, <laughs> along her occasionally interrupted presidency, she kidnaps Hilo and Athena's half-human hu half baby after its embryonic blood has put her terminal cancer at bay. She tells them the baby's died. She rigs the election against Gaius Baltar because despite her fervent belief in democracy, she actually runs a dictatorship that later turns into a religious dictatorship and believes that she's the only one that can make decisions for the colonies. Um, she manipulates her relationship with, Captain Ad uh, with Admiral Adama to manipulate the military in her, in her favour. And she secretly orders the assassination of Admiral Kane from the Pegasus because she views her as a threat to the stability of Galactica and ultimately her own rule. And you like this woman. Oh, awesome. <laughs> um, towards the end of the series, after she attempts to kill Starbuck for wanting to divert them off course, Adama tells Rosalind that she's scared Starbuck will be revealed as the new spiritual leader and Rosalind will die powerless and alone. Um, as a, as a character, she's fascinating not because she's a woman in power, which again is like pushing past that idea of it being about strong women, but because the writers wrote a character that happened to be a woman who makes really, really complex, um, hideous decisions and exists totally within that mould, operating as the leader of the colonies and never having to justify herself because of her gender or like existing basically on beyond ideas that she's she's not a bad leader in my mind because she's a woman trying to make it in a man's world she's a bad leader because she's corrupt and she comes to a realization so many leaders do that absolute power corrupts absolutely um i might skip the second clip just because it's, it's too long and i'll be going over time but it's anyway i don't want to ruin it for you <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then I'll, I'll just skip very quickly through. This is, the, what, this is the problem when you write it all out, you know? It, You're it, not very good at... It, it, it happens. But <laughs> can, I, can I ask a question about yeah. Rosalind? Uh, is it not the case, though, that she... Like, every decision she made, she absolutely believed in. There wasn't... In her mind, there yeah, was no Every decision there was no that George corruption. Bush made, he absolutely believed but this in. Is, this is why this I is think they're an interesting com comparison. But, but you're putting your morals on, on her, but she would... She genuinely thinks she's doing the best for the 
people. Yeah. It may, it may be the wrong thing, but that's what makes it interesting. But that's what, I think yeah. that that, that's what I think makes the show interesting as well, yeah, is that, absolutely. you know, it, like I said, it starts off very much humans good, silence bad, but mm. throughout the course of the show you start realising that it's not just about like, humans versus silence, it's about the complex moral decisions that we all make. And I do agree with you. I think that she makes decisions based on what she thinks is the best for the fleet. But she refuses to be influenced by what other people believe because she's got an, an arrogance about her position and, and how she can rescue humanity. And she's also um, diverted off course slightly by the religious element of it. You know, the religion plays a huge part in Battlestar Galactica and spirituality and religious mythology. And I think that she starts to believe, you know, because she's revealed to be the spiritual dying leader that can mm. lead them to their safety, she starts to believe that press about herself. And that She believes her own bullshit. And that, I, yeah, and it's I think that's with your head. Though. I think in, in context of that, though, it's also a show that reflects much more accurately on modern society than Star Trek did. <laughs> there was a whole season of Enterprise that was pretty much a reaction to the events of um, Eleven of Nine. Yeah, whole season. So. But it was Enterprise, Rob, so no one saw it. Yeah, no one saw Enterprise. Because <laughs> they couldn't get past the credits. <laughs> Terrible. The, but but in, that, in that way, I think, I think Rosalind is, is very much like Kirk in the way that they both make the decision that they believe is the right thing at the time, even though it is quite possibly the worst thing for the society that they're, well, that they're so, dealing um, with. Uh, Joby, you mentioned the episode before, I forgot the name, but it's the one where uh, the original series where Kirk basically destroys a society that actually functions incredibly well. <laughs> yeah, too well, too well. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. he just morally yeah. doesn't think it's right. So yeah, this one guy just wanders in and goes, morally, I disagree with your well-functioning society, I will destroy it by myself. And isn't that terrorism? And that's what Rosalind does. She puts everyone in danger for her own, what she believes is, is her own goal. Mm. But that's the, the right thing to do. I think she's, I think she's fascinating. And you're right, we've, we've not seen a, a woman character like that. She comes yeah. to power reluctantly, but boy does she love it when she, she gets there. Um, just, and just sort of skipping through to the end, I did have a little bit about Baltar and just quickly that Baltar and Caprica 6 represent the best and the worst of both the silence and the humans, and they represent them equally within themselves. And I think that they, the two of them together are kind of like the enduring... You know, they exist... They, they start the show and they exist at the very, very end of the show, and they're kind of like the enduring sort of identity of what is at the heart of Battlestar Galactica, and that's the complex kind of... what You know, what does make up humanity? If we are faced in these sort of science fiction scenarios, if we're faced with um, having to rescue the human race, as is so often the storyline, well, what is it that we're really rescuing? Why are we so perfect? Why are, we, why are we worth saving? And you can't really answer that because, of course, we think we're worth saving, but then maybe ultimately other species are too and we've got things to learn and all that kind of hoo-ha. Um, but just quickly, it's not, I'm not saying that it's a perfect world at all. Um, there are clearly instances where the worst of humanity's traits are brought to the fore and sometimes these are in gendered ways. And as, as um, there was an article on io9 which was talking about the supposed idea that actually Battlestar Galactica is quite chauvinist because, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of things in there. Like, there are, there are rape attacks and stuff like that, but what they posit is that 
Battlestar exists in a world that is post, truly post-feminist because men and women are actually equal, but that you will never ever get away from the particular kinds of ways that we can hurt and harm people. And that actually, within this context, is rooted in humanity's worst qualities. And one of the things that you can do to someone less powerful than you is to violate them in some way. And so women will always face that as a point of violence. So... The insemination farm Starbucks imprisoned on back on Caprica, the brutal repeated gang rapes of Gina, the, um, the six that's on Pegasus, the threatened rape of Boomer at the beginning when she's revealed to be a Cylon. Um, clearly, there are ways that gender will always be a factor when it comes to violence. Uh, but in a world where, yes, there's occasional violence towards women that's based on the fundamental physical differences between men and women... In the way that that society operates, there are no questions of gender standing in the way of what men and women are both capable of. Because, you know, women, as we see, are, are perfectly capable. The rape on Gina is ordered by Admiral Kane, who's a woman. Um, as a side note, I think that the makers should also be commended for representing sexual violence in this show in a way that's horrifying for viewers rather than titillating, which I think often comes up in a lot of TV shows and movies, is that it's done in this kind of vaguely titillating way, which is really disturbing. Um, and in closing, I'd like to share with you some of the comments left on a 2009 article on Wired discussing the women of Battlestar Galactica and the context of the, you know, the assertion of the network in the 60s that people wouldn't accept a woman in power. I really hated the show and I truly believe it's a great achievement in melodramatic mediocrity. Too many women occupying important positions, whether it be in command or in fighting... No wonder humans suffered so much, which brings into my mind the same feminist modus operandi in the Star Trek Next Generation series, but this time a lot worse. Many of the writers of the series were feminist lesbians. <laughs> Feminism, lesbianism, homosexuality is so pervasive in our society that even sci-fi shows like Battlestar Galactica are corrupted by it. Had there been more men of Captain Kirk's medal in Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> mankind's enemies would have bitten the dust long before the 10th episode. I guess it is the sign of the times, men becoming more feminine and women assuming the responsibilities far beyond their natural abilities, despite, <laughs> despite of their weaker and softer nature. I hope they will come up with another brand new sci-fi featuring less female protagonists in important positions for the sake of political correctness and more characters like Captain Kirk, Captain Picard to make it far more believable and interesting. Thank God that atrocious show, BSG, is dead. And I say, good riddance. (laughs) Um, So while the discussion of gender roles in Battlestar Galactica isn't new by any means, in the context of comparison to Star Trek, it seems to me the most glaring difference. And regardless of how uh, the franchise may have become more representative, gender in Battlestar still remains the most progressive of its kind, precisely because it completely rejects any notion of gender whatsoever. The fact that people wet themselves over for the entire duration of the series says a lot more about our culture than we care to admit, namely that if we've reached the 21st century and we're still blinking in unexpected delight and pleasure at the inclusion of strong women in a TV show about the breadth of humanity, morality and our place in the universe then perhaps we haven't reached the final frontier after all. <laughs> Thank you. There's going to be some, uh, some roadie duties, and I'll come around. Uh, but in, while doing this, I, wanna, I want everyone to think about the next version of Battlestar Galactica, where uh, Starbuck is actually played by a German Shepherd. Uh, that, would be, that would be fantastic. I also wanted to uh, talk about the, some of the patterns. I am going to sit back there. No, sorry, I was just oh, taking that from my bag. Oh. Sorry. Oh, oh, that's fine. I'll just stand. <laughs> uh, 
I just didn't want to spill water on my computer. The idea of Star Trek being a, a point where humans outsmart everything else they encounter. Battlestar Galactica as the counter to that, where humans are being outsmarted every step of the way uh, and, and trying, to, trying to get through it. I'd never thought about how they kind of exist in, in, a, similar, in a similar realm, but they are polar opposites. And I, I'd never thought about that. Uh, until AI heard that Star Trek people hate Battlestar Galactic people. And oh, and I, no, I had the nerve to do a Battlestar talk here. I know. It's um, not true. It's, it's, just what I, it's just what I heard when I read on the toilet walls. The, there are no toilets uh, in space. <laughs> we just explode when we're 50. Um, but another, another thing about, about Battlestar... That's horrible. Um, Happy birthday to me. <laughs> and Starbuck. Uh, Starbuck, as, as a woman, I think, managed to do something that Starbuck as a man could never do, and that's have that empathy with the, uh, the Cylon flyer. Uh, I don't know what they're the really open. called. Yeah, the, the, oh. the, the, actual, ship. Oh, the, the ship. actual ship. The actual ship, yeah. Where she gets inside it and starts understanding yeah. exactly how it works because she is... Uh, I, I couldn't imagine a man doing that. A man would just hit it until it worked. That's kind of that's that's what we do. But it would yeah, work. Yeah, but I still don't think that I still don't think that that was that was played as being that she had some greater empathy because she's a woman and everyone knows that women are more nurturing or something or whatever that crap is supposed to be. I think that that's because she was just supposed to be a really really good fighter pilot and she was really intuitive as a pilot, not as a person. She wasn't a particularly intuitive person. Mm. She just connected really really well with. With the, with the plane, plane ship. But Leah Dahmer, with all his feelings, would have never been able to do that. Well, that's because it was written by feminist lesbians. Ah. You keep forgetting that. They had to castrate the men. That Ron Moore was such a feminist lesbian. What a lesbian! One of the comments on that website said that he should just go to Sweden and get the operation that he so clearly wants. To become a Cylon. Is that, is that the operation? Uh, and, and finally, John Richards takes us to what I like to think of as, as TV's final frontier. John? I, I can't help thinking I'm taking us to the shallow end of the pool now. I, oh, I just no. feel like, you know, after that, I, that's brilliant. And I just, yeah. Let's go look at some pretty pictures. Can I? No, I just, <laughs> this to me is a real treat. <laughs> I mean, everyone's been... So great, but because I, kn- I know what yours is, yeah. I've been looking. I don't want to build it, it, it up it too much, but this is the best thing you're ever going <laughs> yeah. to see. Th- thanks, Josh. Yeah, thanks for that. Last time Josh and I were here, we were doing a show about the Muppets, in which I played uh, footage of the Black and White Minstrel show and explained <laughs> how everything is racist. So now it's quite nice to just go, let's look at some pictures and not have to really think too much about it. Um, uh, Sean did mention before, because let's start with the apologies. I did just fly in from Seattle, and boy, are my arms tired. And oh, I'm sorry, I forgot if, to say. If I. <laughs> Sorry, the amazing and adorable John Richards. Sorry. According to the Seattle gay scene, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that was their approach at saying they couldn't understand a word I was saying. <laughs> I think that's what adorable meant in that context, yeah. Um, so, I was going to say, if I do, through jet lag, fall asleep, um, become incoherent, or just start talking about the semiotic thickness of who's the boss, just go with it. Let, let's just... It'll be better for everyone. Um... Now, I asked to speak about Star Trek, the animated series, because it's kind of the black sheep, I think, of the, of the Star Trek family. 
Um, I did want to get from a show of hands how many people here well know of the animated series. Okay, how many of you have seen some of the animated series? How many have you seen all of the animated series? How many have written a thesis on the animated series? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Um, you. So there was a show, right? And it's in the seventies. There was this. Uh, Starting from the late sixties, early seventies a huge thing for taking live-action shows uh, and films, oddly enough, um, that had kind of come to the end of, of their realm and turning them into Saturday morning cartoons. Um, and so uh, when Star Trek came to the end, normally the way they would do this too, uh, there's some bizarre ones, Fantastic Voyage uh, or Journey, which is the one about being shrunk and not the one about the dog. Journey. Voyage. Journey. <laughs> anyway, don't, that, don't that, that one became, uh, became a, a thing. And well, Normally they would do this by taking the dead sitcom or action series, and they'd turn them into wacky teens who often formed a band and then solved mysterious mysteries <laughs> that were a bit spooky. And so when it came time for Star Trek to be bid on, which it was, um, so it hadn't been, it hadn't been off air for a couple of years by this point, um, Filmation, for example, were the first place one of the, the, that they went to. And Filmation, they had a, a really exciting idea, which is different to that. Theirs was to make a, a bunch of teens who would solve spooky mysteries. Theirs was actually... This, this is genuinely the original Filmation idea. This was the, uh, the art they came up with. So there's the characters plus the teen versions of the characters. Now, this is clearly a terrible, terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. And luckily... Oh, where's the question? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Luckily, um, Gene Roddenberry said, wow, that's a terrible idea, but still went with Filmation, and they, they became the, the company that made the series. So what I wanted to show first was, I think you can learn a lot from a credit sequence. So I want to play the, the opening credit sequence. Um, Jay, the sound does fade down towards the end of this, so I'll just talk over the, that bit. But let's, let's start by looking at the credit sequence for what we now know as Star Trek, the animated series. Back then it was called Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. The thing I find quite interesting about this is that you can see there's a lot of respect here. It's deliberately a continuation of the show. It's not teens solving spooky mysteries, but it's also too cheap to pay for the real music. And <laughs> this is actually a bit of a thread for the entire series. You've obviously got people on the creative side wanting to continue Star Trek, and you have Filmation not wanting to spend any money. And it becomes an intriguing thing as we go on. I'll show you a little bit more uh, a bit later on. Um, curiously, though, it was apparently the most expensive animated show on television at the time. Um, I found a, a claim that it was, I think, $75,000 an episode, which um, I don't know where they spent that. I assume cocaine. <laughs> because it certainly didn't go on the animation, which, um, and, and you know, we saw the six-fingered Spock earlier. Um, that was one of the good shots. Uh, <laughs> 
So it's that, it's that weird balance. It's also, uh, most of the cast came back. There's an interesting thing where um, originally all the cast were invited back except for uh, Nichelle Nichols and for um, uh, Sulu, whose name I've just gone blank on. George Takei. George Takei, um, who weren't invited back because basically they just invited all the white people back. <laughs> That's another way of looking at it. And it it's, was... It's funny it, because you can't see them on TV. No, well, originally the idea was that, that people would double up the voices. Oh. And so Major Barrett would be doing a hurrah. Because that's not offensive in any conceivable <laughs> way. And it was actually, uh, it was actually um, Leonard Nimoy who basically uh, said no. He refused to sign unless they got the cast back. Uh, Walter Koenig didn't get a job. Sorry, Walter. You weren't exotic enough for Nimoy to stand up for you. But um, <laughs> he did get to write one of the episodes. Yeah, that was his Constellation Prize. But yeah, it was um, Judith Nimoy that, that he kind of got them all back together. Even though they were filmed, they actually recorded separately and not all the actors play their own character for the entire series. It's really odd. Occasionally there'll be someone else voicing them because presumably those weren't available that week or... It's an odd show. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Um, DC Fontana was in charge of it. Uh, she was doing a very similar role to what she did on the original series, and she was sort of script editor and supervisor on this. And she benefited from a writer's strike in 1973, which said that uh, writers weren't allowed to write for live-action shows. They were allowed to write for one episode of an animated series. And then she basically just rounded up a whole bunch of the original Star Trek writers. So... It's kind of an intriguing show because it's a continuation of the show in a way we don't see again until quite recently with things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer Series 8 as a comic book, uh, the BBC I Doctor Who series with uh, Richard E. Grant that they tried out just before it came back on television. It's, it's this kind of quite uh, adult, but quite, you know, it's for the fans. It's, it's definitely meant to be a continuation. Um, and that's why they went and stuck it on television at 10 o'clock in the morning between Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids and Sigmund of the Sea Monsters. <laughs> uh, I'll play you a clip in a moment and you'll see why that might not have worked. But um, I looked up Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids because I didn't remember it at all. And it's, it's about a group of teens who form a band and they solve spooky mysteries. <laughs> um, and my favourite thing I've ever read on Wikipedia, I will now read to you now from the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids site. The teens were advised by a supercomputer named Mr. Socrates, who was inexplicably allergic to dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that Jay before he said, someone's writing that in their thesis now. <laughs> so uh, I want to show you a clip, I think. Let's have a look at a, a, a clip from the actual show itself. Now, this is from yesteryear, which is held by a lot of people to be one of the best episodes of the animated series. Um, you do need to know that this is basically Spock and Teen Spock. They managed to get him in there somewhere. Spock has gone back in time. Times were rewritten. He's pretending to be his own cousin, as you do. It's like Shakespeare. And he's sort of watching how the young Spock is being affected by his parents. So, Jay, we can play that clip. The time draws near when you will have to decide whether you will follow Vulcan or human philosophy. Vulcan offers much. No war, no crime. Order, logic, and control in place of raw emotions and instinct. Once on the path you choose, you cannot turn back. Yes, Father. I hope you are not disturbed by my son's behavior, Selig. No, my Lady Amanda. Any child has much to learn. My young cousin has a more difficult road to travel than others. You seem to understand him better than my husband. It is difficult for a father to bear less than perfection 
in his son. Spock will find his way. And then they solve a spooky mystery. But as you can see, it, it's, quite, it's actually quite a strangely moody kind of show, especially for Saturday morning. And the people making it weren't making it as a children's show. They were basically making it as a continuation of Star Trek that happened to be animated. For them, they would have liked to do a bit in prime time. Uh, and it's just kind of one of those odd things where it exists in this strange world all by itself. DC Fontana said she considered it to be Series 4 of Star Trek. That was her idea. Um, and it's got this... Like the animation is, is pretty ropey. It's, it's that stuff where they try and animate as little as they can. There are often scenes on the bridge in which the only thing happening is some lights are flashing. Um, there's a lot of eyebrow acting. Um, there's, there's one bit I actually thought was quite interesting. was Because the, the, when you watch the episodes, they're only half an hour long, but they feel like a whole episode of Star Trek. But they're kind of just like the first section and the last section of the story. They're missing like the fight scene and the chases because they basically can't afford to do those. And I remember growing up thinking from Hanna-Barbera cartoons that dancing involved being in two positions and just alternating between them. <laughs> which, which, you know... Because <laughs> that was a party on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. And I think if there were any fight sequences like that, you'd be confused if it was fighting or dancing. It would just be Kirk and a big lizard going... <laughs> So it was quite good that they, they dropped that. Um, but there is a scale to this show. Like they, they often show off the fact that they can walk, they can keep walking through locations and vistas. They can walk from one spaceship to another. The, the, very, the pilot episode has like a 30 million year old organic spaceship, and Spock uses the word mitosis as a plot point at one point. And again, <laughs> Sigma and the Sea Monsters coming up next. You know, it's, it's, it's a, That's a good show. It's a, but I'm just saying, it's a really interesting exploration of things they couldn't have done on the original series. There are even alien crew members in the animation. And what's really great is the alien crew members, there's no, there's no pointing out, hey, look, there's an alien on the, on the bridge. They're just there. It's, you know, these, these aliens are just part of the crew and, and all part of it. Um, so it's, but it wasn't really a 10 a.m. show. And with that, it, 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 it wasn't going to last as long, perhaps, as it, it should have. Uh, I'm going to go on a limb and say I think it's as good as the original Star Trek series. And it's a bit of a shame that they weren't given more they could have done with it. Uh, we've mentioned canon before, so I think at this point it'd be interesting to... We could talk about how the animated series fits into Star Trek canon, or we could stab ourselves repeatedly in the face with a fork, because <laughs> that is one of the most tedious things you can ever possibly do. Um, Gene Rodenberry, however, actually, he dismissed... He dismissed the animated series like some kind of crazy space pope. He just said that it wasn't actually in canon at all. Even though this is a series that it constantly reflects back. We've got sequels to, to Tribble stories. We've got sequels to um, uh, Mud shows up again. Uh, there's so much that links back from it. It just it really follows on. And what's interesting is even though it's not in canon, it's carried on sort of secretly into later Star Trek. And so I wanted to show... Uh, this is a, a sellout. This was Spock's, um, Spock's pet in the episode we just watched. Spock as a boy had a, had a sellout as a pet. Many, many years later, like 40 years later or so in Enterprise, the, they show up again. And that's a CGI one that's wandering around, which is great, because it just came out of the original series. And this is what one would look like if it was a member of the Spice Girls. That's, that's not useful. I just was bored. And, and there's a whole, my favourite thing, my favourite thing, so much of stuff came out of the anime show, but the most amazing thing ever, Tiberius. James Tiberius Kirk comes from the episode BIM. 
of the animated series. That's where Tiberius comes from. So no one knew, knew he was just T. He was before just T him. before that. Yeah, he was a bit straight. You know, right. and, and they um, <laughs> they took that urban away from him because it was the seventies and no one knew about that. Uh, <laughs> My, my favourite thing, sorry, I'm a, I also we mentioned before about making notes, and I do now have three sets of them. I have no idea where my notes are going, so I'm just going to follow them randomly. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the who's the boss. Yeah, yeah, really, give it time. Um, there is my favourite fact, though, of the animated series, which I found earlier, and I don't care if it's true because it's so good, I'm going with it. There is a claim that the director, uh, whose name is in here somewhere, um, was actually, it turned out, colourblind, and no one really knew. And for him, grey and pink looked the same colour, which actually explains why we get it's things... It's a very jovial pet, then. Yeah, well, we get things like this, which are... <laughs> those are tribbles. <laughs> they're, they're the most glamorous tribbles in the world. Um, even better is this... Uh, uh, there's a Klingon, <laughs> our glamorous lavender king Klingon, and... I love this, the campus police vessel in the world. <laughs> Which, uh, that is beautiful. The other reason that I've really enjoyed going back and, and re-watching the animated series and re-exploring it was because it, it's on the edge of a trope that I really love, which is around this time. We mentioned the whole thing about taking the live-action shows and, and making them cartoons. It's not quite right for Star Trek, but in space... Was, was a trope. That it, it's a trope that the fact that even TV trope has it as a trope. And it was the period in which you could take anything and whack it in space as a cartoon, uh, of which we have things... I mean, Josie and the Pussycats kind of, kind of set this off, um, <laughs> if we put it that way. But um, you have things like the Partridge family, 2200 <laughs> AD. That shouldn't exist, <laughs> you know? Um, we have... Killigan's Planet. <laughs> Again, things that shouldn't exist, but they do. Killigan's Planet had a lot of pink in it as well. It did. It was probably meant to be grey. It's probably the same guy. Because almost all of them had Barbera or Filmation. Well, that, that woman in the clip you played, she mm-hmm. looked like um, one of the women from He-Man. He-Man. Well, He-Man. it's curious you say that, because, um, in fact, an awful lot of the backgrounds from, from Star Trek Animated Series do turn up in He-Man. Really? Yeah, they were a cheap company. Um, wow. There's also a lot of really intriguing mistakes for fans to watch, where people are just in the wrong uniforms, or in the case of Uhura, the wrong skin colour. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> just happened the once. Um, <laughs> She was the first pink woman. She was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah, the show which so much love has obviously gone into from kind of the DC Fontana kind of writer, kind of creator world, and then on the other hand, they're kind of going, ah, close enough. <laughs> close enough for jazz. Uh, Hal Sutherland, sorry, was the, was the director whose name I'd lost there. It did win an Emmy, too, it, which, which the original Star Trek never did. It actually won an Emmy. Um, it was a daytime Emmy, a Clayton's Emmy, but it still counts. And that was for Best Children's Show in 1975. Um, Gene Roddenberry himself, in the making of uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, went on record as declaring it to be a fairly good job. <laughs> That's it. A fairly good job is all I have from Gene Roddenberry. And they did also make a Keep Australia, a Keep America Beautiful ad. So that's, you know, that's the kind of thing we're, we're looking at, the kind of classy... Going back to In Space, though, because uh, we are okay, we're running out of time, so let's, let's just skip through. I did want to um, talk about the, the In Space thing. It starts probably with Josie and the Pussycats, In Space. 
in, in, in I think it's 73, uh, and it pretty much does end with Gilligan's Planet in 1982. So it's this decade in which this particular pop culture motif existed. And therefore, I think, we should watch the opening credits of Gilligan's Planet. <laughs> so, um, because I, how much more Star Trek can you get than that? <laughs> so, Jay, can we see Gilligan's Planet, please? We've got a brand new story about the castaways. We left our tiny island after years and months and days. We built a little spaceship. It's crude, but it could fly. We left our and lost our way between the stars and sky. We went from an island to a star, lost on Gilligan's planet. Gilligan and Skipper, the millionaire, his wife. The professor, the movie star, and Mary Ann began a brand new life. What creatures we encounter? What riddles do we face? What mysteries now haunt us in a strange, enchanting place? Our adventures are the best by far. Here on Gilligan's Dark Planet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's educational. <laughs> <laughs> oh, My favourite part about that was how the ship that they built had... Windows that were open, <laughs> leading directly out onto space. If they were really, on, I was if you're really on an island, you would have killed Gilligan, wouldn't you? Like he would have actually, like he would have had an accident <laughs> one night. The, the skipper hits him a lot with, with his hat. <coughs> the, with the space things in space, I have hmm. a memory of Jabberjaw in space. Does anybody else remember that? Jabberjaw in space. Yeah. So he's, he's a shark. He's a shark who can walk. But he's a shark who can walk. He's in space, so he needs a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why Australia has no space program. Yeah. yeah. Sharks, Sharks in space. Actually, in preparation for this, you did ask me, Josh Cannell, whether or not the Harlem Globetrotters had ever been in space. And I said, that was a ridiculous question. They had superpowers and they could fly. They couldn't go in space. That's just nonsense. Except if we go back to... Futurama, where they come from their own planet. They do. Actually, look, I've got one, I'm going to play my one last clip anyway. This is, this is a clip from, from Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres' show from the 90s. Sorry, Jay, I'm going to throw this on you. Um, it's from the very final episode of uh, Ellen. Um, she did a, a special at the very end of her show, which is really worth watching, and it's a retrospective of the uh, 50 years she'd been doing her sitcom, back from when it was black and white to the current day. And there's a clip of, of when she was an animated cartoon in the 70s. Can you show that for me, Jay? When I was little, I had so much Ellen stuff. I mean, well, the lunchbox, of course, and uh, the uh, little paper dolls, you know, and uh, oh, those, the um, Ellen-shaped vitamins. Every Saturday morning, I would uh, wake up at six and watch the cartoon. Every word to that song. 
There's Ellen and her fun bunch in outer space. They... Uh... <laughs> Lesbian feminist. <laughs> Is that how it happens? That's how it happens, Rob. Actually, Lesbian feminists get in charge of everything and then they... Do you want to know what really geeky is? What was that show you mentioned, Butch Cassidy? Butch Cass and the Sundance Kids. Uh, Butch Cass and the Sundance Kids, yeah. One by one, we're going to beat them all <laughs> and solve that mystery. And here's where it gets creepy. Come and play with me, Butch Cassidy. <laughs> now that's geeky. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's all, all I had written down was pink and Gilligan's Planet, and then you went there. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so I've got uh, nothing except, except for, was, wasn't I right? Greatest thing ever! Uh, the, the, the Star Trek animated series had so much emotion that the live-action series didn't seem to have. Well, I, I think it's because they couldn't do stuff, though. Like, they, they, weird enough, they couldn't do the action sequences. And I think that possibly forced them to have to rely a little bit more on the emotional side of it anyway. Or, or at least the intellectual side. A lot of those, those episodes are quite, here's the big mystery. Yeah, spooky mystery. Let's yep. solve that. <laughs> uh, and it's, yeah, it's kind of surprising to have a whole episode about Spock's upbringing. Yeah, which I think was then... Was that not then copied for something later? A movie or something? Right. I remember. That's, that, Sp- that speech, Spock's father to the little boy, Spock. Oh, Old of, man Spock, the young In the new um, Star Trek movie, the number 11, there is a lot of in it that's pretty much clearly drawn from yesterday. Yeah, yeah the, the newest film actually yeah, it's, sort of nods back to that episode. It, it, rang, it rang a big bell. In my only head. For us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only for us. Uh, I am now going to throw it open to, to you guys. We've got a panel of experts here on various, various topics. Uh, I've asked a bunch of questions, and quite frankly, I'm all questioned out. Uh, yes, you, sir. Um, one of the reasons that I think everyone likes Star Trek is that it was willing to challenge. Oh, sorry, one moment. There's a microphone because it's being recorded, so you'll have to start all over again. That's all right. One of the reasons I think uh, fans are attracted to Star Trek is that it um, challenged a lot of um, conventional views on things like race and gender and so on. I wonder if you'd care to comment on why it never challenged the final frontier of having a gay character. There is Uh, a gay character in First Contact who gets killed. (laughs) Well, no, there's an implied gay character. Yeah, whatever they... There was rumour 1.7 of 9 was going to be a queer character, which would make really a hell of a lot of sense, too. That here's this girl who's never had a sexuality and she's becoming human and suddenly realises she's interested in other women. Um, there, there, there was various times there's rumours to be gay characters. The show itself always backed away from it. I, I've got to admit, I don't think the show was ever actually as progressive as we may think. You know? and, and it's that thing of... We were talking before about... you know, I think Doctor Who was intellectually a bit more open to the idea of... You know, Star Trek always comes back to there was a hierarchy, there's a military hierarchy, you know, there's, there's usually a white guy in charge. And I know there was an attempt to write a gay episode which recently got made by some... There's a fan group in America who make their own kind of semi-official videos and it's one that was intended to be made for Next Generation, I think. And was well, there was that next gen episode where they come across a genderless society, 
um, and uh, anyone who exhibits a particular leaning towards a particular gender gets re-educated in the, 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 the manner problem. of speaking. And, and then there's a love relationship between Riker and one of them. And, and um, Jonathan Frakes really wanted the actor to be played by a male actor so that it, the analogy to homosexuality was more clear. But they backed down from it and it was played by a female, which really kind of undercut Yeah, I think it was that. the advocate or someone at the time said, oh, no, a, a show in which someone's being punished for being a heterosexual, that's science fiction for you. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, maybe, uh, maybe in the 24th century they found a cure. Ooh. <laughs> hey, Cleon, you know. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, it, uh, one stage, um, it comes up in Deep Space Nine and it comes up in, in Next Gen with the, the, the Doctor um, has a relationship with a Trill who then goes into a female body but she can't handle it. They sort of sideline that as being not being about homosexuality per se. She just can't handle all that changing. Um, and, um, that's, of, of clothes and outfits Yeah, yeah, that's and right, exactly. Yeah. Accessorising would be hell. Yeah. Um, Dax, one of form, Dax's former... Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, partners in um, Deep Space Nine goes into a female body, but again, that's given a tragic sort of ending as well. So that's, that's sort of like kind of kind of getting there and then always skirting around or making it some sort of there's, tragic no-go. There's always no a sense go. of discomfort with stuff, yeah. right? which is really kind of irritating when you're going, just have a gay character. And Roddenberry himself is saying, oh, in the future it won't matter. Well, if it doesn't matter, just have one. You know, don't... Yeah. I could be completely off the beaten track here, so correct me if you think I am, but I think that sometimes with... Um, the character of Data is, uh, he doesn't have to have a sexuality, but because he has elements to him that could be seen as being um, not quite as masculine or slightly feminine, and I'm not saying that that is at all how gay people should be characterised. But, but he's very neat. But that's, <laughs> I think that, that, I think that people uh, very cheekily get away with putting in characters that they think will sort of satisfy a particular kind of whether or not it's a gay community or whether or not it's, you know, like, oh, well, we've got, we've got an African-American woman on the bridge, so what are you complaining about? I'm sure there's only one in the whole show or whatever, whatever it is, you know? the phones. Um, <laughs> so I think that I could be totally wrong, but I suspect that there was an element in the data characterisation that that was supposed to, like, satisfy a gay community and also satisfy the fact that they didn't have to actually show anything because and they could justify that by saying well he's you know an asexual robot so the answer to your question is cowardice I mean and, and there was you know we, we can retroactively say that Tasha Yar was, was a lesbian because she just didn't last long enough to actually have a, uh, Data a, actually had sexuality. With, he with, was fully with, functional. He, with, he, yeah. he, he, he bonked. He actually has sexual touch, yeah, doesn't he? So that's yeah. in both those characters. <laughs> Which or is, or, or sort of neither of them have, uh, have a nose. They were faking it. Yeah. They were each other's beards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's much better. Let's go there. That's yeah, yeah. Really I like, I like that. Isn't that episode called The Beard? <laughs> uh, next question. Anyone. Come on, someone. All that information. Why do the Talosians have butt heads? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All, that, all that pumping extra mental power is, okay. is geared it all up there. And they just look like here. bum heads, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> holds up better than Next Gen, I think, because you feel more detached from the 1960s, at least I do, than I do from the 1990s. 
You know, so it's not reason history. But you, you're right, it covers 45 years. So, yeah, at one time it was a bit daggy on one particular thing, but it's grown over time. That's the thing about it. You know? it's, it's, it's stayed with the current themes and the, the technology has advanced so that they no longer talk about um, time travel as just altering the past. They, start, they started talking about parallel universes, so they've followed scientific theories as they go along. It's a very complicated show and it's really hard to en- encompass in one little thing. I, th- I think that's a, a great point to end on. Please thank the panel, Rob, Joymi, Clementine and John. <laughs> and uh, thank you. Thank you.